0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches
1: for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I'm looking forward, Wade, to delving into one of the thorniest topics in this week's episode that we've ever dealt with on the show, period, and that is dealing with the family over the holidays. You know, Kevin, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and... uh I really think that you should you should just let it go. You know, politics discussed over a turkey dinner never really bothered me anyway. We've got a great show planned for you listeners. Maybe you're experiencing
0: a turkey hangover. If so, keep those utensils handy because we're discussing Ryan Johnson's newest whodunit mystery. Knives out.
1: We're also going to be keeping our fingers crossed that our vocal cords are in fine singing shape for our review of the sequel to Disney's smash hit Frozen, Frozen 2 Freeze Harder. (laughs) All that's coming up on this episode, episode
0: 227 of Seeing and Believing. Mr. Blanc, I know who you
1: are. I read your profile in the New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85 year old father who committed suicide. Why are you here?
0: I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. We are here, listeners, with a, I guess, a Black Friday edition of Seeing and Believing. It's a dark day in our world, our consumeristic culture. But hopefully, Kevin, this podcast will help our listeners to to somehow make it through. Somehow.
1: Well, you know, we we like giving uh, special deals ourselves on Black Friday. Our listeners are getting this episode for the low, low price of free. So if nothing else, they can kind of feel good that they've gotten at least one good Black Friday deal amidst all the rest of the misery of Black Friday shopping. Right. And and they
0: don't have to stand in line, which is great. I do Or have punch to... any other shoppers in the face. <laughs> yeah. No, I like mean, that. if you want to get the deals – You got to do what it takes to be the best. And that happens. (laughs) But we give the deals to everybody. Yeah. That's just the kind of podcasters we are. I do come bearing bad news to our listeners, Kevin. One, the subtitle to Frozen 2 is not freeze harder, sadly. Oh. I wish. And (laughs) to my dismay, once again – Arnold Schwarzenegger is not in this film giving ice puns. I thought that would be a softball. It's an easy one for them to put in, but he is not at all included in this movie.
1: It, yeah, and they even used Roman numerals for for the number in the title instead of turning the Z into a numeral two. I I don't know. I feel like Disney's kind of asleep at the switch. Here. <laughs> They're
0: just doing it for the money. And they've never done that before, which is kind of you know, kind of strange. Listeners, we do, however, begin this episode of Seeing and Believing with a dive into the world of murder and family lineage and the whodunit thriller. Here is the film's official synopsis. Acclaimed writer and director Ryan Johnson, whose previous films include Brick, Looper, and The Last Jedi, pays tribute to mystery mastermind Agatha Christie in Knives Out, a fun modern day murder mystery where everyone is a suspect. When renowned crime novelist Harlan Thrombey, played by Christopher Plummer, is found dead at his estate just after his 85th birthday, the inquisitive Detective Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, is mysteriously enlisted to investigate. From Harlan's dysfunctional family to his devoted staff, Blanc sifts through a web of red herrings and self-serving lies to uncover the truth behind Harlan's untimely death. With an all-star ensemble cast including Chris Evans, Ana de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, and Katherine Langford, knives out is a witty and stylish whodunit guaranteed to keep audiences guessing until the very end. Kevin, notice some of the words used in this synopsis. Fun, witty, and stylish. All three of these, Bill knives out as an entertaining mystery ride designed to delight and perplex viewers. So, the question I have down to get us all started goes like this first and foremost did you
1: have fun watching knives out delight is a good way to describe the effect this movie had on me wade i had an excellent time with knives out and i think it just speaks to how a movie can just be elevated so much by just having a director with a a sense of wit and style, both in his directing and in the script that he's working from, which in this case Ryan Johnson is responsible for both of those, and he delivers in spades. This is a movie that, it's it's twisty and I don't know that it's all that perplexing in the sense that I was sitting there in the theater trying to solve a mystery and match wits with the detective character. I know that that's something that a lot of people like to do with mystery stories. It's something that I don't typically do because I'm frankly not smart enough for it, and I never I never succeed. So I just kind of enjoy the more surface pleasures and enjoy just seeing the ways that the twists are delivered and enjoying the effect that they have on me as you're sort of uh, pulled from one uh, path to another in unraveling the the tangled web that's at the heart of the character's schemes. This movie, I think, does an exemplary job of that. And for that reason alone, I think it has to be considered a success. But even beyond that, I just think that there's the execution on this is just so perfect on every level from the editing to the writing to the directing. The performances are all wonderful. I I guess if I had one quibble, it would be that I would want more Michael Shannon out of my movies with Michael Shannon in them, but you can't have everything. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. Long story short, a delight is a great way to describe what this movie has going for it. What did you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's all of those, all the above, right? It is fun. It is, it is witty. Uh, It's delightful. And there are a lot of reasons why it is delightful. It's it's twisty, there are some fun revelations that are turned upside down, there are some characters that kind of waffle back and forth between good and between uh villainry. There is great dialogue and I, I think too at the root of this film is the idea of self preservation and hypocrisy. And and Johnson does a fine job of of really just kind of highlighting some of those qualities. This is a family that is supposed to be close to each other and they, they would have no sort of quibble turning on someone else in order to get what, what they want. And the way that Johnson emphasizes that not just through the plot but through the dialogue we get these characters they'll say things like you know i usually keep this in the family and it's just this fun exaggerated sense of of family relationships and you know the the times when you you know you say oh family means everything and then you realize oh you know i Family does not mean everything uh, to me. So there's just uh, so many things kind of going on for this film, but it is one of, if not the funnest movies, if I could say funnest, it's the most fun that I think I've had at the theater, uh, this year, which is, uh, which is definitely saying something.
1: Right. And again, it's all about the execution. I don't know that there's, I mean, it creating a, complex plot like this one, it does take some skill. It's not like anybody can just sort of dash off a clever whodunit and make it good. But I do—it is something that there are a lot of people with that talent. Um So, I, yeah, and we've gotten plenty of films like that before. But I think Johnson, for me at least, is— while he is writing these great screenplays that do have that kind of crackle that that you and I have both recognized he is also a really great image maker and he does subtle things with the visuals and with the editing choices that he and his editor uh Bob Duxie uh do here that tell their own little stories without needing any dialogue To assist them. One of the things I'm thinking of is early on in the film when Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc, you know, nice Hercule Poirot homage there, is interviewing each of the family members about what they know about their uh, patriarch's death. Uh, And each of them gives an account of the birthday party that happened the night before and cleverly. Each one of them, in their telling, Ryan Johnson shows this reenactment of their story and he kind of caps it off in the same way each time with this birthday cake being set down before Christopher Plummer's character, the candles are all ablaze, and the That's all the same, but the two people flanking him on either side always change depending on who's giving the account of that night. so when Michael Shannon's telling the story, he's the one who's by his father's side while the birthday cake is coming down when jamie Lee Curtis's character is telling the story, she's the one by his side, and that's just it's not something that Johnson calls out pointedly it's some a trick I think he only uses two or three times. But just that little touch tells you so much about what these characters are like, how they think of themselves, and how they see their place in this family. And those little touches just make all the difference.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, just some of the blocking to highlight the relationships of these characters, how they feel about each other. And there's, there's, I mean, a, an incredible shot at the end that really hammers all of that home as a great reference point for this movie. I like the movement of the camera. The camera is twisting. It's, it's panning. It's shooting up. It's shooting down. We as an audience are trying to figure out this mystery. We're trying to figure out who to focus on. And sometimes the character or sorry, the camera feels uh, the same way. What character should it be focusing on? The production design is highlighted in the compositions and you definitely get this world of, of, well, old money, right? And a, a house that has been built over the decades, uh, with success. And it's an institution now. And this family is an institution now. Well, what comes next? And all of that serves one of the big ideas or themes of this movie. And it is the concept of who is self-made. Everyone in the family says that they are self-made, but we know that they are made because they were able to stand on an institution that has already been formed. And that plays into the political allegory, which I think for the most part works. There are some parts that feel a little too, a little too pushy, but for the most part works that we like to think we we have built our futures ourselves, but for many of us, uh, we are standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. And we see all of that kind of play out in this very literal, fun, comedic way. Just once again makes this, this film a delight.
1: Yeah. There's the plot here centers around the will that Harlan wrote just before his demise. And the reading of that will kind of kicks off the second act and all of the complications that are the reason for bringing in Benoit Blanc in the first place. So basically, the estate and all the money are left to, let's say, somebody who is unexpected. And in that reversal... The you know all these family members are accepting you know like I'm going to be the one that you know gets the house or I'm going to be the one who gets to take over the vast publishing empire, and when their those expectations are frustrated, watching them turn on a dime from these you know kind of condescending people who tell the the staff of the house you know like his nurse or, or the maid you know like don't worry we'll, we'll take care of you we don't want you to you know leave empty handed. They can't remember the country of origin that Ana de Armasa's character comes from. They all, it's just like some vague Latin American country. They don't even bother to remember what it is. And when that reversal comes, they go from being, uh, seemingly very gracious and generous to being graspy and greedy and horrible. And I mean, that's not necessarily, you know, revealing that these, wealthy people are secretly not very nice people at heart. That's something as old as A Christmas Carol, at least. But Ryan Johnson finds a way to explore that well-worn theme in a fresh and interesting way through the use of the whodunit tropes. And I think that that refreshes it, and it brings it into 2019, particularly with the the kinds of things that all of these family members talk about and fight over while they're sitting around waiting for the mystery to be unraveled you know they they talk about they talk about Trump and immigration and they call over Anadar Massa's character and and you know like put her on the spot and just like you know don't don't you think that hard work matters once you're here in this country and of course you know what's she going to say and that's that's something that is not only fun, funny, but it's also really sharply observed about how those kinds of conversations tend to go. And I think that keen eye for human nature is what sets this movie apart from just sort of a fun, entertaining time at the movies to something that has a lot more on its mind and a lot more to say. Yeah, and, and the film is, as I mentioned before, Concerned with hypocrisy, but specifically
0: the idea of having the quote unquote right beliefs or the right words to say versus living that out with your actions and being able to say certain things from the shield of our uh, position or the position of our ancestors or our parents or our, our grandparents. And so within this group, you have conservatives far-right um, far, far right conservatives. You have uh, liberals, and they're all sort of arguing. You have these conversations. As I mentioned, th- there are some that work really well. Most of them do. A couple feel a little bit forced. But what Johnson does is he presents all of that for us. And then, one by one, no matter what these characters have said... They turn around and they act as if, uh, or they live in a way that's opposite of what they said. So if they said, Hey, you know, you've got to have hard work or if it's this or that, they, they do not live by those standards when it comes down to their money and their position and their power. There's also this theme and it was surprised, probably shouldn't be surprised of social media. Johnson has been hammered by people who did not like, uh, The Last Jedi. I mean, it's just, it's just wild to see people respond to some of his tweets and the things that people say. And characters are seen on their cell phones pretty often, holding their cell phones, talking about Twitter, talking about, you know, I read a tweet about a New York, a New Yorker article. And, and ultimately, the idea of that, that shallow observation, that sort of washed out truth, uh, people talking, but not people, people not living it out, is emphasized in the movie. And it's very funny, but it's also, it does make for a pretty good political allegory. And that, um, even from positions of power, we can say the right things. But what, when it comes down to us having to let go of what we think is ours, um, what are we going to do? What are our reactions going to be? And I think that makes this film pretty special because it does seem to have something to say, but it knows the proper balance of the fun and the light and the comedy and, um, as I mentioned before, that allegory.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Ana de Armasa's character because I think that Marta, the the character she plays, is sort of the heart of this film. And that's called out pretty explicitly. She's told a couple of times that she has a good heart and she's sort of the person that all of the drama centers on. And throughout the movie, she's kind of trying to simultaneously figure out how to almost defend herself against these, you know, this, this horrible family that she's kind of found herself in the midst of while also trying to find a way to not really compromise herself. And Johnson literalizes this in, in kind of a disgusting uh device by making her have the quirk that whenever she tells a lie, she gets physically sick. She she has to, she feels like she has to vomit if she even tells the slightest falsehood. And it is a very in your face sometimes literally device but johnson makes it work because he he needs to find a way to really draw the contrast as starkly as possible and also make the final moment of the film really land with a, a great crowd pleasing cheer and i don't want i'm not going to spoil what that is but the i really like the last shot of this film because it's simultaneously gives the audience what they want but also works with it slips it in in such a way that circumvents kind of the easy desire for for vengeance or for uh, a more drastic come up it's psych- like i let let's say i i just i really like his treatment of, of her character quite a bit in this film
0: she's really good and i i don't know if i've seen very many films where she uh plays a large role in the movie. And, um, I think the biggest one is probably Blade Runner 2049. She plays Joy, but she does a fine job here. And she, she seems to highlight the hope in the movie. And I don't, I wouldn't say that it's, it's naive. Um, it's something that somebody might call naive because Daniel Craig's character talks about the inevitability of truth. And he has this funny line about gravity's rainbow that's just fantastic. And he talks about how truth will win out and good will win out. And uh, what's done in the darkness will be confessed in the light. And when things begin to move in that direction... Her character seems to emphasize the possibility of that hope, and so at the end of the movie, you have these these definitely. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you'd say this this idea of of maybe revenge or yes, the characters that need to be gotten did get you know they were gotten, but we also have this idea that. Maybe maybe there is still kind of goodness in the world, and maybe truth does win out, and maybe maybe people give what's undeserved. And there could be some grace there in the midst of of just morally uh moral darkness, if that's the best way to put it. And so yeah, I think some of those ideas really mix well in between this this story.
1: Justice figures really strong into this film and Johnson signals that in a few ways. I really like the uh, visual motif of this big chair uh, or backdrop that Harlan has in his home. It's, you know, it's in the trailers. It's that it's almost like the Iron Throne. It's this backdrop of knives that are all sort of pointing inward towards a center. And at the beginning of the film, all of the family members are uh, interviewed in front of this. Uh, knife backdrop, but they're all f- framed a little bit off center. They're off to the side. Um, none of them is kind of filmed head on against that backdrop. When Benoit Blanc is finally giving his, his big, uh, speech about how things happened. He sits at one point in front of that backdrop, only this time he's in the center of the composition. He's dead on in front of those knives and they all look like they're kind of radiating out from his head. It's, it's an image worthy of a graphic novel. It's really striking. But in that moment, Johnson is signaling that, okay, this is the arbiter of justice. He's going to figure it out and, and bring things to write, and again, that's just a really subtle directing touch that is incredibly gratifying. And he, Johnson also finds a way to evoke the the films of Alfred Hitchcock in the score from his cousin Nathan Johnson, which is sort of like this Bernard Herrmann stringy, you know, tense score that is. Most prominent at the beginning, but pops up a few times throughout the film. And that, at least to me, kind of evokes those, those Hitchcock pictures where there's somebody who's trying not to get caught. And the entire film is kind of, you're caught up with trying to figure out, well, you know, are they going to get away with it? What's going to happen to them? And in this film, at least, things reach a resolution that feels just and earned. And I I think it's just, I think that's maybe one reason why it's been hailed so much as a real crowd pleaser is because everyone kind of does long for that justice to see things put to rights and to see, you know, people who are, you know, rich hypocrites who really are just looking out for number one, kind of get theirs. And that's, been a crowd pleasing idea from day one. Ryan Johnson knows how to get give the people what they want, but to take a path to get there that is consistently surprising. And I think that's why he's such a a wonderful director to to follow and to watch.
0: Yeah, and there, you know, there's a line that says "blood like wine." This is spiritually infused line in the picture and this sort of longing for something redemptive to happen and just the overall layout of this movie. It begins after, days after the death has taken place. And so we see flashbacks while the story is progressing in the future and there is a pretty big revelation towards the middle part of the movie which would I think normally in in many of these films would come towards towards the end. So just the layout, the way that this story is told it's it's not just the mystery itself uh, but it's how that mystery uh, is pulled through it, it reminds me, Not so much, it's not a similar film to Christopher Nolan's Memento, but if you think about Memento, it's not that the story is all that insane. It's just the way the story is told. And Johnson shows us that you can put together a pretty strong mystery and then find creative ways to tell that mystery to make it even stronger. And I think that's you know what he does here.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's really well said. Listeners, Knives Out is coming to theaters this weekend. It should be in theaters already for you to enjoy with your family or maybe if you need a few moments away from your family, it'll serve that purpose as well regardless of your reasons for seeing the theater we'd love to hear what you think of it what you think of the mystery and what you think of everything else that ryan johnson is doing in it our email inbox is always open to you seeing and believing capc at gmail.com you can also hit us up on twitter at c believe pod don't go anywhere we're going to be talking about frozen two in just a bit
0: That song is Sunset Clouds by The Anesthetist. You know, Kevin, I have mentioned at the beginning of the middle segment of almost every episode we've done, I don't know, for a year and a half, two years, about our Patreon campaign. We've talked about that. And we very much appreciate all of our listeners who have become Patreon supporters. We also want to let everyone know about something new that's coming to the podcast. It's something that we are currently experimenting with and we're going to do this for the next few months and see how it goes but we will have ads on the podcast which will actually help support us as we as we move forward so that's that's pretty exciting uh like we mentioned it is something new that's happening and we're still very much carrying on our patreon campaign so this is this is kind of a uh a bonus and add on to that and we're hoping that it works out well but listeners you might be hearing some ads as we move forward in the future and just wanted to keep you updated on that and and kind of what was happening in the seeing uh, the seeing and believing world
1: yeah you know uh one thing that we've been wanting to do with seeing and believing for a, a while now is find ways to to make it sustainable because Wade, you and I, we both really love doing the show and we want to keep making it for many years to come, hopefully. So this is all part of that. And we do really appreciate both those people who have, uh, supported us on Patreon, as well as those who, uh, kindly listen to the show with or without ads. We, we just couldn't do it without you guys. And we really appreciate you, uh, sticking with us as we we try new things, as we do try to make things sustainable. So it's a good time. Um I'm looking forward to seeing where the show goes next.
0: Seeing where seeing and believing uh goes. So yeah, we're really excited about all of that. Listeners, you can support us. You can continue to support us at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. We have a new Patreon supporter this week, Eric Johnson. And what's cool is... Oh, I don't know. Maybe a month and a half ago, uh, Eric, who lives in Houston, reached out to me. He listens to the podcast and we were able to hang out and grab some coffee. So that was a really great conversation. Hopefully we can do stuff like that in the future. But, uh, Eric, we really appreciate you supporting the show. Every little bit counts as we keep this, you know, this, this thing going. I guess it's not a baby anymore, but this, <laughs> uh, toddler, it's going off to school. Toddler. We keep this going.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe a, a moody adolescent. I, I'm not entirely sure, but, and it's not even a, a little bit with Eric. Eric was a real champ. He pledged at the $10 a month level. Um, that is one that gives you a whole lot of bang for your buck. You get to vote in, uh, you know, any polls that we have up on the site, but it also gives him, shall we say, uh, Cinephile dictator powers Basically he can choose One film in the next year For us to review on the air So uh that is A part of his reward Package in addition to uh The lower tiers as well So we're looking Forward to getting in touch with you Eric Keep an eye on your email inbox For us to get in touch with you about The film that you want to dictate To us This year. (laughs) You know, I'm
0: really excited about that. I also want to ask you, Kevin, changing it up. What could someone
1: buy for 10 (laughs) bucks? 10 bucks is twice as much as five bucks. You get a lot for that. 10 bucks would get you a prophecy from a Canadian moose oracle. (laughs) I, that would never have happened. Well, we
0: talked about five dollars, so it's really great oh. that Eric is supporting us for ten because we got to hear about that. And the 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 moose will probably just tell you something that you know you already know, like hey, you got big dreams, and you know keep fighting for those dreams, and good things will happen. It, but it's it's nice to have, nevertheless.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the moose oracle won't even shake its antlers for a measly five dollars, so you know you have to shell it a little bit more even to get that little little prophecy right there we also love hearing from our listeners uh whether or not they are patreon subscribers uh we love hearing from you guys just about your thoughts on the films that we discuss on the show we got an email this week or actually i think we got it last week but we just didn't have time to read it on the air uh from adam peterson he had uh some feedback for our Jojo Rabbit episode. JoJo Rabbit, that was a film that you and I split on a little bit, Wade. You like you had you had reservations about it, but I guess you on balance kind of liked it. I was a little bit less sanguine on it, but Adam Peterson found a lot to like about it, and here's what he had to say. Guys, enjoyed the review of JoJo Rabbit, but mostly because, for perhaps the first time, I disagreed with both of you. There's no mm. flowchart for this. <laughs> Part of the reason why I do think Jojo Rabbit works is because of the perspective of Jojo, a 10-year-old fully indoctrinated kid. That allowed YTT to take a, an absurd approach to the fascism because, yeah, fascism is absurd. I think Thomson McKenzie works this aspect best. You'll notice imaginary Adolf shows up less the more time he spends with her. Adam goes on to say, I don't think Taika has to change anyone's mind with this movie, especially considering anyone whose mind needs to be changed ain't seeking it out. Like you said, he's Jewish. Rather, let's remind the people who who will see the movie what's at stake. Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry reinforces this, especially at the end. Goodness and kindness and mercy are necessary and are perhaps the best weapons against and for converting convincing Nazis. It's this message that, as a Christian, I find most refreshing. He goes on to say, Keep up the good work, gentlemen. I'm catching up on a backlog by listening to episodes of movies I've seen, so don't be surprised if you get another message from me for Parasite, Joker, or even The Lighthouse. I paused the episode to send you this note. So, wow, that is really great to hear that he even, mid-listening to the episode, paused it and dashed off an email to let us know his thoughts. That was a lot of fun to get. So thanks a lot, Adam. Yeah, no, Adam,
0: we really appreciate that. And I I always love it when our our listeners really think through our our podcast episode. I still haven't seen Parasite. And every time, it's like – Every time I go and I'm I'm about to leave or I'm going to go see it, something comes up and I think I miss my window. I don't think it's playing anymore and I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. Maybe I'll get a screener or something. I'll, I'll try to figure something out. But... Yeah, yeah, still haven't you seen to, it yet. You need you
1: need to shake that screener tree and get one to fall out because that is Ugh. that is one that you need to see before the end of the year, wait. I'm just going to I'm just going to come right I and know, say it. I know. I know. Especially, you know, I'm looking at my
0: top 10 and I'm saying, "Hey, there's some good films here, but I've also got some room to grow." So, we'll see. I I'm going to I'm going to f- definitely try to find something. We'll we'll see how it works. We'll maybe a dollar theater somewhere will be showing it. it we'll, we'll figure it out
1: well fingers crossed listeners like we said you can always email us or tweet us your feedback we love to read it on the air we're about to jump into the sequel to frozen though so stay warm and stay with us christoph can i borrow your wagon and sven i'm not very comfortable with the idea of that you are not going alone anna no i have my powers to protect me you don't Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart, and saved you from my ex-boyfriend, and I did it all without powers. So, you know, I'm coming. Me too. I'll drive. I'll bring the snacks!
0: I will look after your people.
1: Please make sure they stay out of the kingdom until we return.
0: Of course.
1: Let's let them know.
0: Anna, I am worried for her. We have always feared Elsa's powers were too much for this world. Now, we must pray they are enough.
1: Well, now that we've spent time at the adults' table, it's probably time to head over to the kids' table now with our second (laughs) review of the show. Disney's Smash Frozen franchise certainly needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce it anyway because that's the way I roll. First off, Wade, I hear you're a family man. You've got two sons, I believe. So I am curious to know before we get into the review proper what kind of history they might have with the first Frozen. So... It is funny. You said that.
0: They So, okay, we were pulling out some Christmas decorations, and my son grabbed this little snowman. I don't even know where it came from, but he had it. And he uh, he's two. He loved it. And he kept asking us what his name was. And one of us just said Olaf just because. We probably should have said Frosty. And (laughs) he kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And so just like a week and a half ago. We turned on Frozen just so he could, so he could see it. And he's probably watched it five or six times since then. And so he seems to enjoy it, but he doesn't, he only really likes it when Olaf is on the screen. So it's kind of playing in the background. He's doing stuff and then he looks up and he's like, Oh, snowman, snowman. Uh, so it's had a little bit of an impact uh, as of late, but we, I didn't take them to see the new movie. So who knows where it's going to go.
1: Oh, so so they, they haven't been the sort of fans that are have known about the existence of the sequel for a really long time and have been waiting with beta oh, no. <laughs> for you to take them.
0: No, I haven't even told them that there was a sequel. Maybe I'm a bad... <laughs> dead parent but no I haven't even said anything.
1: <laughs> well, definitely hide this podcast episode from them then because we are going to be talking about that sequel here in this segment. This sequel begins a little while after the events of the first film with Elsa firmly ensconced as queen of Arendelle and her sister Anna at with her sister Anna at her right hand. Soon though, a mysterious magic power drives the citizens from the peaceful kingdom and Anna and Elsa have to go on, you guessed it, another quest to find out what the problem is and if Elsa's magical ice powers can save the day this time. Wait, this is a sequel that expands on and takes the series in a shall we say a new direction from the first film which is probably what a sequel should do but the important question probably on most people's minds when they're thinking about going to see this film is how does it compare to that first entry of the franchise
0: that's a good question i i'm not a huge fan of the first film i've Probably, I've, I've seen clips of it as I mentioned from the past week. But just sitting down and kind of watching it all the way through, I've, I've watched it all the way through one time, and wasn't necessarily impressed. It's fine. The film makes some odd choices towards the end. It rushes some choices towards the end. But I, I think it's, I think it's a fair movie in terms of what it's trying to do. I do, I don't like this second film. I, I feel like there's. There's this, of course, this formula in the first one, and it's these these characters uh, that are fairly interesting, characters, characters that you might even be able to see as role models. You've got the funny sidekick instead of an animal. It's a snowman. You've got the songs, and it, it's as if the second film says, okay, here is the mathematical equation to create a hit. Let's do it. But while there are some good songs, and while there are some good characters, they just don't seem to fit into the story the way that they should. And ultimately, I left not saying that like, this was really bad, but I, I just really didn't enjoy it. I just I, I was
1: very disconnected from this film. Uh, how about you, Kevin? It feels really inessential, I think is a good word to describe it. It's not so much that you watch this and it feels just outright terrible in the same way that the live action remake of the lion King was where it just, it literally seems like there's no reason for it to exist. And it's strictly inferior to its predecessor. I don't think that's true. Frozen two. I watched it and it was, it was fine. I didn't have a bad time with it. Um, with the first film, that's a, you know, it's, it's a sturdy, uh, Disney animated feature. I think it's, it's, Reasonably good. The second one feels like it's there mainly to keep the franchise fires burning, but doesn't really have a whole lot on its mind other than keeping the franchise fires burning. I mean, to its credit, the um, filmmaking team of Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, who worked together on the first film, They do do their best to sort of find new ways, new places to take these, these characters and try to expand on the first film setting. I just don't know that they really fully succeed. It just, a lot of it feels really perfunctory to me. And none of it really seems to build it towards something that feels fully satisfying. It feels good enough. And, you know, if you're a kid who really liked the first film... Watching this one will probably scratch the same itch, but I'm not sure that it really is good for much else other than that.
0: Well, I mean, I think there are two types of sequels, especially animated sequels. And that one where the characters not just face new challenges, but they must stretch themselves and they develop as characters. And a great example of that is a film we've talked about numerous times, is, is Toy Story 2. Woody has to face his inevitable demise, and he has to look at that and then make a tough choice. That's different than the first film. And then the other type of sequel is a sequel where the characters just go on another adventure. That is Frozen 2. These characters just go on another adventure. At the end of the first Frozen film, there's really no debate about the main characters, so you could say Elsa and Anna, about the main characters and their goodness, their morality. They're going to make the right decisions, even when things are difficult. That's We know that by the end of the film. When they face challenges in this film, their characters really don't have to develop because, once again, they're just faced with a difficult decision to do the right thing when things are hard, and of course we already know that they're going to do that. And as a result, it does feel inconsequential and it it feels like, well, like I said, it's just another journey. And so if you like the first journey a lot, you'll probably enjoy spending more time with these characters. But when you don't develop the characters like i think you should what do you get well you get scenes where where Kristoff is uh trying to propose and he's not having a chance to do it and, and we're kind of just artificially creating conflict there because there's really nothing else to do with these characters and so you have conflict that just feels out of place and odd and and just it feels manufactured and that's what is happening here with frozen 2
1: Yeah, you're going to have to want to spend more time with these characters in order to really get into this movie because if you're kind of frozen agnostic, like you don't have a very strong emotional connection to to the people in this story – there's not really a whole lot for you to hold on to here. The film does a fine job with maybe exploring a couple new facets to the relationship between the central duo, you know, Elsa and Anna, they are sisters, and the film kind of explores the ways that that relationship is tested by Elsa's responsibilities as a ruler, uh her continuing angst over, you know, what her role is, what her place should be, what her vocation should be. And that's really about it. There's not really... Watching this movie as somebody who doesn't really feel a strong emotional connection to Olaf or Kristoff, it it doesn't really feel like there's any reason for them to be in this movie at all. Kristoff really doesn't have anything to do other than <laughs> be clumsy yeah. and and try to propose to Anna, which is just... It's not an interesting subplot. It's it's the sort of thing that you'd get in like an episode of Home Improvement where it's sort of like, you know, here's the clueless guy and he's trying to do something nice for the person he loves and he just keeps messing it up because he just is a dumb man and doesn't know what to say, which is kind of, it's a little hacky, I guess. And for a film like Frozen, which you know didn't necessarily reinvent the wheel but definitely was pulled off with a level of artistry that is commendable having that kind of rote uh character building and conflict creation just it it feels either a little bit lazy or as if you know the filmmaking team really Wanted to have all the characters reunite for this new adventure, but couldn't really justify a reason for bringing Olaf along on this dangerous mission where he is 100% liability. It's just, if you like Olaf, you'll like that he's there. But the plot sure as heck doesn't give him a reason to be there. And heaven help you if you don't like Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> well, It's funny you say that. I think
0: Olaf is the best part of this movie. He, I think he's funny. Uh, he, his lines about um, life changing and what that means and how to move on in life. I, I think it's funny because it's, it's almost this dark humor. You've got a snowman who's... Um, Uh, who's, who's alluding to death. Like that's, that's kind of funny in a kid's movie. So I like him. He he doesn't have anything to do. Kristoff doesn't have anything to do. You have these other side characters, uh, who are actually voiced by people who are great performers, whether that's Sterling K Brown or, uh, Evan, Rachel Wood. They just don't, they really don't do anything. Now, some of the songs are good. As I mentioned, I don't know if they're fully integrated into the story, but some of them are pretty good. Visually, I, I think what I what I have appreciated about the Frozen films is that it, it really knows how to compose images with ice and snow to create this sort of, at times, really fun, but also menacing environment. And we get that here. There's a really great sequence where... Uh, where Elsa is underwater and, uh, she comes out riding on a horse and it's, it's, it's all really good. Visually, it's pretty nice. Um, but then again, you know, that's, that's about it. And you've got these other characters are kind of running, running around. And it just, it does make me kind of scratch my head because this film came five years after the first one, which is a long time given what I feel like is a very underdeveloped script that just seems kind of strange to me uh, that somehow we didn't come out with something that was that was thought through a little bit more.
1: Part of that problem I think can be symbolized in the, the early song into the unknown. So we're maybe like 15 minutes into the movie. There's been this standard, you know, reintroducing us to the setting opening musical number, sort of like that happens at the beginning of many a uh, Disney anime musicals. So like, uh, the show opener Belle from Beauty and the Beast or Arabian Nights from Aladdin. This one, you know, it's kind of the standard. We're, we're back in Arendelle. They're kind of celebrating a Thanksgiving adjacent festival. Um, and here are the, you know, the characters are in the castle. They, they play charades together, whatever. Then. Elsa kind of hears a voice that is a callback to the, this old fairy tale that, uh, her mother told her as a child. And she gets up out of bed and she launches into the song, Into the Unknown, which is very reminiscent, probably intentionally so, of her, you know, the big, you know, song heard around the world, Let It Go from the first film. But the problem is that there's not really it's not really the culmination of anything and it doesn't really build on anything that's been established so far. In the first film Let It Go is sort of this climactic rejection of the repression that Elsa's been obliged to engage in for her entire life. So when she see you know she launches into this You know, Adina Menzel lends her huge voice to this anthem for shaking off all of those restraints and finally claiming her own identity. It feels not just like a good song, but also as something that is a big payoff to the narrative and the character beats that have been hit so far. With Into the Unknown, she's singing about, you know, wanting adventure and wanting to go into the unknown, but there's no, there's no real architecture there girding it and making it feel like anything other than just a lot of sound and fury like she's why does she want to go into the unknown up to that point it's sort of like well she's kind of feels out of place with being a queen like there's there's nothing there that feels that makes it feel like a payoff in the same way that let it go did and i kind of found that to be the case with a lot of these musical numbers where individually in a vacuum they're fine but they don't really build off of one another and they don't really pay off any narrative beats with a couple of se- of exceptions. I think, you know, show yourself is maybe a better example of the let it go thing where Elsa reaches a goal and kind of has this big showstopper and that's pretty well done. And then Anna kind of has a, um, a corresponding musical number about trying to do a really hard thing that she doesn't want to have to do. Those both work pretty well, but there are only two songs in a, you know, an entire musical that should probably be a little bit stronger musically because of that. Yeah. I I think,
0: I think honest song about doing the next right thing is, is pretty good. And probably my favorite, I do want to talk about the film and it's thematic structure We mentioned the political allegory in Knives Out. There is a political allegory here. And the film actually wades into similar territory as that of Thor Ragnarok in that there are wrongs in the past that must be righted. And, of course, for us in American history, we can easily make some very strong connections to our past. And the film... (laughs) it 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 feels like an afterthought uh, to try to make the film important and the way the movie ends feels i guess you could say like a, like a cop out and if a movie wants to talk about courage and boldness to do the right thing especially as it relates to a very deep and important topic then I think the film has to itself embrace boldness and courage in its storytelling. So to bring up another Pixar film, I mentioned Toy Story 2 earlier. WALL-E is a fun film. It's great. We've talked about it before. It deals with a number of different issues, whether that's uh, consumerism, the way that we treat the environment, um, global warming. And it found, finds this incredible balance – between hope and fun. And this is a movie that a lot of children are going to see. It's an animated picture and also reality. And I think the ending is really just, I think the ending of Wally is perfect. And I think here, this movie didn't embrace that type of courageous and well thought out storytelling. And as a result, I think it cheapens the overall allegory that it's, it's really trying to dig into.
1: There's a couple of problems with the, the, political resonances of of the subplot for for one thing it's really narratively unsurprising i mean you get no points for figuring out that maybe the group that builds a giant dam on the land of an indigenous people maybe they're going to turn out to be the bad guys like that's not really (laughs) yeah yeah that's technically a spoiler but anyone who is has a functioning brain is going to Think maybe that's going to come up again later. So um, that's that's one problem with it. The other problem is that, like you said, there is sort of this original sin that is is brought up in Arendelle's past, and that Anna and Elsa uh, have to reckon with somehow. And the way and the entire time that's set up as sort of like there's you know something's going to have to be sacrificed. This isn't going to be uh something that else is just going to be able to magic away with her ice powers something's there there's going to be a cost to setting things to right and then the 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 final resolution to to the scenario there's not really anything giving up everybody gets to live happily ever after <laughs> nothing is really lost and the people who are most strongly affected by the sin in the past don't really do anything. They just, they're they're really passive while their problem is solved for them, which sits pretty uneasily in a story that's supposed to be about a critique of colonialism. It's just, it's a little bit muddled. It's not all that interesting from a simple drama standpoint. And it's just, it's kind of a disappointment that that's really the best they could do, given that there are all sorts of directions they could take a story like that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why it it does ultimately feel underdeveloped and it feels uh, cheap. I I mean, I think I think probably I'll go back to what we said at the beginning. This is one of those movies that is pretty weak. It's definitely not on par with many of the Pixar sequels and if you're not a fan of fr- Frozen, this is probably not going to be one that wins you over. If you are a fan of Frozen, then I, I, you probably enjoy just kind of hanging out with these characters. Like people enjoyed Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Remember that one before Coco that lasted
1: I am trying five to hours?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and you'll, you'll probably enjoy that. Listeners, that's, our review of Frozen 2. Make sure to let us know. Maybe you completely disagree with us. I would love for you to reach out and to give us your thoughts. That would be great. We could read them on the show. Just tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod or email us Seeing and CAPC at gmail.com. Kevin, we have reached the end of the episode. It's the part of our episode where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What do you have to recommend today?
1: Well, today is actually the day when I saw the f- film that I'm going to recommend on this episode. So uh I don't know if I've talked about Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin on the show before, but I think it's a tremendous film. It's this kind of creepy, experimental sci-fi film about an, an alien played by Scarlett Johansson who takes on human form. And essentially preys on the human men whom she encounters. It's, it's off putting. It really makes you think about our own relationship to our bodies and to our own humanity and what constitutes humanity itself. Really great. Jonathan Glazer has just come out with a short film called The Fall. It just came out. Uh, I think it might have been released this week and it's about 7 minutes long including credits and it's just this really unsettling trip into a world where everyone is wearing masks and some people are hunted down and kind of lynched and uh yeah i mean it i i'm struggling with how much i want to describe it because part of the film's power is just not really knowing what's going on and not knowing where jonathan glazer is going to take this premise but it is really unsettling has some very some some images that are still stuck in my mind as i'm saying this and it's it's almost like jonathan glazer watched the purge movies and decided that he wanted to make that as a short film and also make it not stupid. And he succeeded with flying colors. So Jonathan Glazer's short film The Fall is my recommendation. You should be able to watch it for free uh just by googling uh googling it. So uh and I would highly recommend that you give up 5 minutes of your time to do that.
0: <laughs> I I'll definitely have to do it. It's it's a low buy-in. Uh I think we might have mentioned Under the Skin a couple of years ago when we discussed our our top 10 films of the decade so far that was like you know at the be- in the beginning days of the podcast but i i wasn't a huge fan of that film i i think it's fine but um i'm definitely interested in uh thinking through this new one and and also maybe revisiting under the skin before we talk about you know our our top 10 of the decade after the end of the decade. We'll, we'll probably do that in January or February. <laughs> so we'll see. Everybody's coming out with their list now, and you, you got to wait because Katz is going to be out, Kevin. And if Katz is coming yeah. out, you can't make your list too early.
1: How how embarrassing it would be to jump the gun on the best of the decade list before you can really dig into Tom, what is probably going to be Tom Hooper's, you know, <laughs> piester resistance, you know, just this, <laughs> this utter... This utter climactic, uh, cinematic revelry. Words fail me, Wade. So I'm looking mm. forward to seeing that and seeing whether Under the Skin or Cats is going to be on my really <laughs> best of the decade list.
0: It'll, Under it'll the be a close uh, It just feels like a double bill for the ages. You know, one of those go to a drive in theater and watch Under the Skin and Cats. I mean,
1: well, you you know, like one (laughs) one of them is about the the horror of being in a strange body, and the other one is under the skin, so. That's perfect. Um,
0: I'll, uh, I'll move on to, to my pick for the week. It's a film that I just saw. It's, I've been wanting to watch it for the longest time. It's, uh, Robert Altman's 2001 film, Gosford Park. And the reason I, I really pushed myself to watch it was I knew that I was going to watch Knives Out. And this one is about a, Murder Mystery, it's a whodunit murder mystery. It's set in 1932 in a country house in England. And it concentrates on the upstairs guests and the downstairs servants. So it it almost feels like this knives-out, Downton Abbey mix. Uh, a number of different stars are in it. And while this is pretty different from ryan johnson's movie you can see some of the similarities you can see how this has probably been influenced by agatha christie and then how uh ryan johnson is it's probably utilized this movie as well it's a pretty good whodunit it's more dramatic than i thought in that it really puts an emphasis on the barrier between the upper class and between uh, the servants. So I, I very much enjoyed it. It's currently playing on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix subscription, you can stream it. Once again, that's Robert Altman's 2001 Gosford Park.
1: I was scrolling through uh, my Netflix recently and saw that that had been added to their streaming service, which is good news for me because that's a blind spot of mine as well. So it is currently in my queue awaiting... Uh, my attention, maybe after the crazy year-end film watching crunch passes. So looking forward to catching up with that one.
0: Yeah. You know, and Altman just finds a way to manage such big casts. I mean, he did it so well in Nashville and he does it. He does it pretty well here in Gosford Park. Listeners, that is the end of our episode. I don't want to jump the gun, but next week we are talking about a Martin Scorsese picture. The Irishman, that's going to be playing on Netflix. Uh, actually, by the time this is published, that will be on Netflix, a three and a half hour journey. And I am so excited to watch that movie, Kevin, and really excited to talk to you about it. We talked about silence a couple years ago. That was a great conversation. So I, I think this is going to be a good one, too.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to uh, talk about The Irishman with you. It's there, There's a lot to talk about for sure. So that'll be a good episode.
0: Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Listeners, we want to thank you for checking out this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and
1: Believing